We came out in 1988 from California, as most of you already know. And, uh, you know, we left behind our, our parents, our families, and brothers and sisters and everything else. And, uh, but, you know, God provides along the way, right? He provides what you need along the way. And, and uh, it wasn't too long after we were here. Uh, we were meeting over in a, at, a, at a, what's the address? The Knights of Columbus Hall, I was trying to think of the number I'd known it, I'd known it over on Post Road. And uh, we were meeting there and uh, just having a great time, and uh, this gal showed up, and uh, she said, you know, don't talk to me. Well, she didn't say that, but she just wanted to be there, and uh, it turned out that um, she became like my second mother. She's like, more like a spiritual mother, really, and uh, so I just, I call her mom, and and she hassles me, and I hassle her, and uh, we have just a great time doing it. But that was way back in 19, about 1990-something, early, early, 91. 91. See, just like a mom, she was like, you can't finish your sentence, and she's going to, like, help you. And uh, so that's who we're talking about, uh, Mrs. Barbara. And, uh, but, you know, since then, uh, which is a lot of years, you know, um, just praying and supporting us and serving and, and just being involved in so many different areas. And so today, in honor of Mother's Day, I've asked um, my mom, my second mom, to come up and she's going to share some of her story and about serving in her life as well. So let's give a nice welcome to Barbara. It's okay. I'll move this. And fix this because I don't know how it works. No, we'll fix it. And I got to watch where I stand so I don't fall off. Yes. You understand that he's a typical kid. You know, they all expect mothers to make miracles. And he asked me to concise 65 years of my Christian walk with the Lord into like, like 10 or 15 minutes. It's absurd, but I'm going to try. Now, I want to begin, because i got to rush quick. I want to begin with a line from a medieval text. It was written in the 1300s in an English that is so strange to the English we use today that it can only be read in translation. And so in translation, the line reads, Thus passed the year in yesterday's many. Yesterday's many. And as I think about that, I look at all the years that have gone and the yesterdays. And when you think about the, be, oh, I get my thoughts here together. If you look at the obituaries, you'll notice that in many of them it will say so and so passed on such and such a date, and it means he died. And the year yesterdays many that passed are dead. They're gone. They can't be brought back. They can't be revised into a new edition. They can't be amended or altered. They're gone. And what did they leave? And that be, made me look at foundations, the foundation that Jesus speaks of in building on the rock or building on the sand. 
And of course, the, in order for the edifice that's being built, which in this case, Christian experience, Christian life, it has to be built on a solid foundation with a, with a really strong solid foundation. And the bottom layer has to be the bedrock, which is salvation. If you don't know Jesus as your savior, you might as well quit because all you're doing is building a kid's castle on the beach and every time you get it partly done, the wave is going to come and take it away and it's total futility. So with that layer, that foundation of salvation, you can begin to build. <laughs> Excuse me. And what I'd like to do in the only little bit of time I got is to focus on seven verses of scripture and I pray that out of the objective truth of those scriptures and the experiential illustrations that I want to present to you from my own life that you'll be encouraged in building your own foundation now and I'm gonna this is going to focus primarily on very early years I'm just going back to the 40s the war was over Things were good in many ways, but they were tough in many ways. And I was probably around in my mid-teens, and I remember being given the verse at that time in 1 Corinthians 10.13 in answer to a question I'd had about a difficult, uh, potentially destructive uh, issue that I was uh, dealing with. And that verse is, and, and some of you may know it, and, and the verses I'm using are from the King James. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God, who is faithful, will not, will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And that became a building block in my foundation. And that verse has come back time after time after time because temptation never leaves you alone. And I didn't solve the problem, but it began to nudge me away from the problem. And it gently pushed me to meeting a group of people around my own age in New York City um, who gathered from the Bronx and Brooklyn and all over and we met and were involved in, uh, on the weekends we spent our time in street, uh, media, street preaching meetings in Times Square, and weeknights we, we all worked or went to school during the day, and in the evenings met for Bible studies and uh, all kinds of stuff. And um, we were studying, I remember, the book of Romans. We were meeting in a in a room over a storefront dance studio in Astoria, which was not an exciting place to go. It was just on the other side of the 59th Street Bridge from Manhattan. It would kind of run down and dumpy. And, and we met, we were studying Romans, and I all, Bill had been asked to be, for those of you, some of you don't know Bill, but my husband, and I shouldn't have told you that yet. That's coming later. Anyway, he was teaching the book of Romans, and one of the verses, uh, thoughts, has stayed with me all these years, and it's hard to see what I'm reading here. Um, in, in Romans um, 15, even Christ came not to please himself. And its companion verse in Matthew 20, 
Christ came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And that is another very strong building block in my foundation, which has reminded me all through the years, every time a pity party started gathering steam, every time the jealousy, the green, the green jealousy began to match what I was wearing, those, there those verses are. And they helped control those things. And they provided a, a solid base from which to appraise them. And then the next step in, in that process was the issue of commitment. And commitment is a very serious thing. And, and, and I remember spending up in the Adirondacks that three days pretty much keeping to myself and pondering and thinking and praying and seeking God's will. And the driving force behind that was Romans 12, 1 and 2, and many of you may know that. I beseech you, you know what, I forgot something. Let me back up a second. When I was thinking about foundation, before that I had been thinking about my age and your age. And just, I see Hilda sitting there, reminded me I left something out. There's, I, uh, Hilda and my sister-in-law are the only two people in here who can beat me by a few years. Not too many. There are some of you who are trying to catch up. But most of you are probably somewhere in the median range of half of my 82 years. And as I've built this foundation, I was thinking, thinking about foundations, I was thinking of you and the world you have to look forward to and the future that you're facing. And it is in many cases bleak and it offers a great deal of a sense of futility. And that's why I want to share with you, to encourage you about building your own foundation. And I'll go back to, to commitment, that's number three. Um, Romans 12, one and two. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I realized towards the end of that, that three-day sort of hiatus that this was the way to go. And for me, it was like signing a contract. And it was a contract that was irrevocable. It was between me and God, and there was no fine print that said, if you're not happy in three days, send it back. And that contract has stood me in good stead all my life. And in a way, it puts a heavy kind of confining um, thing around you. But at the same time, it's freeing. You made the commitment. I made that commitment. I signed that contract. I didn't have to think about it anymore. It was the governing factor of decision, every decision I made. Um, it wasn't a question of whether I liked something or didn't like it or thought it was a good idea. It was a question of what does God want? And I have never regretted that. And at that time, when I was part of this group, Bill and I had become very, very good friends. 
The problem was I wanted to take that good friendship to the church, and he wanted to keep it where it was so it wouldn't interfere with his life. And at that point, our paths kind of diverged. He stayed in New York, and I went to Minnesota to Bible College, to Minneapolis. And when I came home, I'm going to see what number I'm up. When I came home at Christmas, we got engaged. And we got married that summer. And, he's, and I, I had transferred to a Bible college in New York, and I urged him to go. I knew he needed to go. And with a push from me and a little help from his friends, he enrolled at this Bible college in New York, getting in just as the GI Bill was going to cut off. And we had that. And he went to school. I went to work. And God gave me something very special at that time. I was in a struggle because I wanted him to go. I loved him, and I wanted to go to work, but I didn't want to quit school. And so I got kind of snitty about it because I was jealous of everybody who was going, and I got cranky. We were still spending weekends in Times Square. Every night we were someplace in some meeting, and I was exhausted. And I was in the subway one morning going to work, and I was so tired that if there had been room to fall down, I, I probably would have just fall down, uh, fallen down and cried. But, you know, you're all hemmed in like that. You couldn't fall down if you fainted. <laughs> and I was reading. I, I, can, I can picture reading my, looking at my Bible, I guess because you couldn't fall down. Um, and God directed me to, I believe it was direct leading, to a verse in Joshua. It's a statement, an irrevocable statement. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel, all came to pass. And with that reviving, sustaining, encouraging surety, I was able to keep going, and Bill graduated, and then we made a move. In stark contrast to New York City, we went to a little mill town in Connecticut, and there, God gave me some more of my foundation. Now, this one about things not failing, that was a major building block and strong. And when we were there in, in this mill town, it, it were many good experiences. Some of the stuff I want to tell you, but I can't because I don't have time. But... but as I look at the, the yesterdays that passed from the earlier years, and here I am in this little mill town and living in kind of a, like a farmhouse kind of a place. And I was very, I felt very insecure. I mean, the thing creaked and had all kinds of strange noises and there were a bunch of critters that thought they, you know, had squatters rights. And it was, it was not, it wasn't totally easy. And we were studying at that time in the Wednesday night prayer meeting, the book of Romans. And I remember Bill, no, the Psalms, in the Psalms. And, and I remember this so clearly. In fact, Valerie used it just recently. And it's a verse from Psalm 4, where David was, in, was being pursued by Saul. He was extremely vulnerable. I guess it was in some desert or something, very vulnerable. And he was tired. And he wrote in Psalm 4, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. 
For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. And here was another tremendous building block in my foundation. And I figured if he could do that, there's no reason I can't go to my bed and sleep. And it has saved me through many difficult nights. And then, while we were there, something else happened in, in that mill town. I was not a good pastor's wife. I wasn't what anybody wanted a pastor's wife to be. But I didn't do any of the things a pastor's wife was supposed to do. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. And, and I, I just didn't do. And I felt very insecure, very much a failure. And in the process of trying to meet what I conceived as everybody's expectations, I inadvertently got myself trapped in a drug addiction. And nobody knew it. It's odd looking back. Nobody figured anything out. But I had become the eighth wonder of the world. Everybody thought I could do anything. And, and, and for a while, I could until the deterioration began to set in. And it followed kind of a clinical pattern. And when I started hallucinating at night on the road and stopped driving, I began to take it seriously. And at that point, one day, I remember it was in one afternoon, I, did, I, I just knew I was in terrible danger, that I was going to lose everything I wanted, which was Bill and the kids. And Valerie wasn't born yet, so it was four. And I remember sending them to their room because I felt I was going to harm them. And I got down on my knees by this ugly little couch kind of thing we had in this parsonage and prayed. And I remember feeling... Um, like Jacob, wrestling with the angel, and I remember distinctly saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And I don't know how long I was there, but a peace came, and a sense of, of God's reassurance that it's all right. Everything's all right. And I got up, and as I got up, I looked at the wall, and there was a plaque that had been given to us as a wedding gift. And this is verse number seven. In my, in my building of my foundation. And the verse was from Isaiah, and it said, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And it wasn't solved then. It was almost a year before this thing reached its conclusion, and that's when Valerie was born. Most of you know Valerie sitting back there. And... When I went to the hospital to have for her birth, I remember I slept for three nights, two nights and three solid days, and on the sixth day I went home and I felt free. And, and that was the building of my family. There are other verses, other, other truths from God's word, but I wanted to present those to you as the foundation. Now, that was early on, and from that point... We, we had a number of other experiences. We, eight, eight years after moving to that mill town, Valerie was not quite two. We moved to California, to Los Angeles, to become part of a missionary uh, effort to educate students, Chinese students, from overseas. They were not allowed to come from China at that time, but they came from countries all over the world. Bill taught Bible classes on the campus, is not as an official part of any of the universities, but going on to campus, because it's always nice in Southern California, you can sit on the grass. And teaching at UCLA and USC and, and Caltech Bible classes of Chinese students 
to give them a foundation for their futures. And we stayed there five years. We went to a Chinese-speaking church for five years. So ask me what I learned. I don't know, because I didn't understand anything anybody said. But, but after five years, we bought a Los Angeles city bus, a white 1948 Los Angeles city bus, which we bought from a Chinese Nazarene church. So don't, don't even ask about all those kinds of connections. Um, we took all the seats out, packed everything we owned in it, and headed east. Because Bill and I both had the conviction, deep-rooted conviction, that he should go back to school, get his graduate degrees, and begin teaching on a secular campus and having that kind of uh, an availability to students rather than coming in from off campus. And so we moved to the University of Connecticut. Um, I'm trying to make sure I'm getting my sequence right here. To the University of Connecticut, and we moved to a, a city, they call it a city, a Willimantic. I don't know if anybody's ever been there, but we moved to the part of Willimantic that was called Down Sodom, if that tells you anything. And we lived in a funny little house, and I thought we'd be there a couple of years. got to be seven years. That was a long time. And it was the kind of situation that today, some of the kids come to me and say, how did you and Dad ever do it? And one made the mistake of saying to me one time, why did you ever do it? And at the end of the seven years, we moved to Rhode Island. Bill had gotten a job at the Community College of Rhode Island. Had, I think he was there for probably 20, 28 years, I think, taught a number of courses, had good relationships with students, was able to balance out the materialistic um, uh, um, emphasis of most philosophy courses and present much more objectively and fairly and was the, the uh, Christian position with in the teaching, and then was also able to counsel students, and uh, we had students in our home. It was a very productive time. But um, then seven years after he retired, he died. And that shook my foundation to the core. And for all of its shaking and, and, and trembling, and threatening to collapse and crumble, it didn't. Because God's word is what had made it strong. And I would encourage each of you. Now, it's Mother's Day, and I was thinking I probably should have said something about mothers, but <clears throat> I saw Nicola in the hall, and it reminded me of all those years, and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but what... But whether you're a mother or a father or a monkey's uncle or a teenager or wherever you are in life, it is not too late to build that solid foundation which will stand you in good stead, as I expect mine to continue to stand me in good stead for the years that lie ahead. And one last verse. It's not, it wasn't part of the initial foundation building. But it was given to me by a very special friend here in Rhode Island. Probably was the second year after Bill died. I was having a hard time. And I was getting a little bit peculiar. But as I told some people, I had an advantage because I know peculiar when I see it. 
and and it, but it was very hard. And she gave me this verse, and I want to leave this one with you. I haven't memorized this, but it's a marvelous statement from the Word of God, and it's in Isaiah. And it says, "Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God." I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And it doesn't get any better than that. God bless you. Colossians chapter 4. We've been looking, uh, along with the testimonies, uh, just at different people that were associated with Paul at the end of this epistle. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, Mark, the man who came back, someone called him, <clears throat> and really the second chance for Mark. We also saw uh, Barnabas, who was his cousin, uh, the son of encouragement. He helped Paul, and then he helped Mark. And you remember the story, Mark had quit when they were out on the mission field, on the first missionary journey. Mark quit, went back home, and uh, I think about this, when he went back home, his mom was there. Because we read earlier in the book of Acts, it says his mom was there and they had a prayer meeting at the house. So when he got home, I just wonder what his mom's response was when he got back home. But she was praying for him, I'm sure. And, and then Paul didn't want to take him on the second journey, but Barnabas did. And then they, Paul and Barnabas had this disagreement. They split up. And then, and then later on, we see it's all turned around and Paul speaking very highly of Mark. And the message is that God wasn't finished with him yet. Mark had grown. He had matured. He had um, Learned and God was now using him, him and he became the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And so the, the message there, get back on the field, the game is only half over for you and for me. A good message to remember. Today, uh, I want to look at some different people here. We'll see how many we get to in this uh, people part four. Uh, different stories and different gifts and I and I just love again hearing people's stories and I've got a couple of testimonies uh, from people if you want to write one down and send it to me uh, please do or give it pass it on to me I'd love to read it I'd love to hear your story because each one of you are rare and beautiful treasures in God's sight and and you, you know all the things that God is building in your life what a great uh, testimony this morning to build our lives on a foundation of God's word because that's what's going to stay strong when it gets tough. Not our own feelings, not our own, you know, intelligence, our own strength, but on the strength of God, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, and what he's given to us. The first one I want to look at today, chapter 4, verse 11. His name is Jesus, who is called Justice. He also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. The first one is Jesus' justice. And uh, Jesus, as you know, it was, a, it was a common name, really, and it was a, it was a form of the Hebrew name Joshua. But uh, 
you know, I was wondering about this. His name is Jesus called Justice. And I was thinking, like, what would you want to be called if you were there and, you know, you were a disciple of Jesus? And but Justice probably was his last name. So Jesus Justice was kind of his name. And I think I might want to go by the name Justice if I was him. Seemed like they called him that. Um, you know, we, we sometimes call people by their last names and that kind of thing. Just that, but, but, but then I was thinking about this, you know, in a way, those of us who are believers, we go by the name Christian. And that's kind of, you know, that's a, a responsibility that we represent Jesus Christ. And so for him to have that name, you know, it's, it's something to think about. But the, the, the idea here in this particular person's life is that we don't know a lot about him. This is all we know about him. That's all we know, just what's written in that one verse. Warren Wiersbe said, you know, that he represents those faithful believers who serve God, but whose deeds are not announced for the whole world to know. Those people that, that you'll never hear about. The people that do things around here that you will never know they did. But God knows, and God remembers. God knows his name. And he gets included here. This man, Jesus Justice, God knows he had a, you know, a relationship with Jesus Christ. There are a few things that we do know just by this verse. Number one is that he was with Paul. He was a fellow worker, it says here. He was a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. He had given himself to work for the kingdom of God. He had given himself to serve and do what God had asked him to do for the kingdom of God. Now, whenever you hear those words, kingdom of God, I want you to think about this, that the kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. The heart where God is the one on the throne. It's something you and I struggle with from time to time where we want to be on the throne. I want to be in charge. I want to be king. But he is the king, the only rightful, true king. So he was a fellow worker with Paul for the kingdom of God. He was working for the kingdom. The second thing we see was that he was a Jewish believer. He says he was a Jew. He was a Jewish believer. And he was working with Paul, the apostle, to who? To the Gentiles, right? Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean he didn't try to reach Jews. He always did. But there were a lot of Jews who thought that really wasn't the best thing to do, to go out and speak and try to reach Gentiles. But this man said, listen, I don't care. We've got to reach people with the gospel of Jesus. Maybe every day he woke up and he said, man, i got the same name. We've got to let people know. And the third thing we see about him is that Paul says that, along with others, that he had proved a comfort to him, a comfort and encouragement to him. We know, you read, you read what Paul's written, and we know that Paul had lots of different trials. And there were many, many times Paul needed somebody, a comforting co-worker and a friend. He needed help like that. We all do. If Paul the Apostle did... We do. I do. You do. There's something about the, the fellowship and the, the needing of one another. And Paul 
needed this guy in his life. He was right there at the right time. You just do not know. For such a time as this that God puts you in someone else's life to be that person that could comfort them and be there when they're having that trial and that trouble. Barbara mentioned someone who gave her a verse of scripture a couple years after Bill had died. That person was a comfort. This man... Jesus Justice, quietly doing what God called him to do. He didn't need to have his name up on the billboard. He didn't need to have, you know, recognition. He just did what God called him to do. And that's what God wants from you and me, to be faithful. Just to do what God's called you to do. Be faithful with what God's called you to do. So that's the first one there, Jesus Justice. The second one found in verse 12 is a man named Epaphras. Epaphras. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. And I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. This church, as, as you think back and, and when we first started the book of Colossians, it's most likely the church in Colossae was started by this man Epaphras. He was the guy who got it going. He most likely had heard the gospel from Paul while Paul was teaching in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. And he was from the city of Colossae, so he went back home. This is the best way we can piece it together. He... Perhaps he felt God's call to bring the gospel back to his hometown. i got to go back home and let these people know about Jesus Christ. It says back in chapter 1 that he was a, a dear fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Notice what he says here too, though. He says he's one of you. He's one of your own. He's one just like you. He wasn't like, you know, up on some pedestal. He was just one of us. He's one of you. But he's also a servant. That's what it says there, a servant of Christ Jesus. He was a doulos. He was a bondservant. But what stands out to me in these verses is what it says next there is that he's always wrestling in prayer for you. He's there with Paul, right? He's sending his greetings back to Colossae, this church that he, that he helped start at any rate, in his hometown. But he just cared about those people so much. It says he is wrestling in prayer for you. This guy, he was a prayer warrior. You hear that phrase, prayer warrior, well, what does that mean? That's, this is what it means. This is, this is an example of what it means. A guy named Epaphras, who cared about those people in Colossae, but not only Colossae, but also Laodicea and Hierapolis, he was praying for them. He was wrestling in prayer. Wrestling in prayer. That, you know, we, uh, Warren Wiersbe said he, simply, he didn't simply say prayers. He labored, he agonized, and, and that word means agonized in prayer. He agonized. That same word, by the way, was used about Jesus in the Garden, Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, you know, Luke chapter 22. It says, being in anguish, being in agonizing, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And they, medically, they've proven that, that it, it, being in, in agony of like that, that can, can happen. That you can get so agonized, so built up, so worked up that, that blood would actually come forth from your pores. This is the kind of prayer. This was Epaphras' 
ministry. I think his main ministry. Now, are we all like that? No, we're, we all have different gifts, different callings, different functions in the body of Christ. But this guy, and where would we be without people like him? Remember, we talked a few weeks back and Paul, Paul said, please pray for me. And I, and I shared the same thing. Please pray for me if I can't even do this unless someone is praying for me. And I, and I feel kind of spoiled in a way because I know there have been people praying for me through the years. But don't stop. Because I, I, I'm, you know, just as in need of prayer now as I was back then. But Paul had this guy with him. And, and Paul, you know... When you look in the book of Ephesians and other places, though I'm not going to go to these passages, but Paul, especially in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3, Paul had these prayers that he prayed for those people in Ephesus. He loved them. He, he prayed for them, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so they would know him better. He prayed that they would have power to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know the love. He prayed for them, and I, and I wondered if maybe some of Paul's prayers kind of rubbed off on Epaphras. Because it says here, what did, he, what did he pray? He says he prayed that they would stand firm in all the will of God, mature, fully assured. Epaphras cared about them, but he prayed most of all that they would stand firm, stand strong in the face of trials, stand and, and know what God's will is, to grow and to be mature. I think that ties in very well with what we heard this morning about building this foundation and standing strong in it. There's something about prayer. There's something about prayer. And maybe you need to ask someone to pray for you. Maybe, maybe there's somebody that can pray for you. But you know what? If they don't know, how can they pray? Oh, I know God can reveal it to them. God revealed somebody what my situation is and, and have them pray for me. And you know what? He can and he probably will do that. But there's something that Jesus said, you know, when two or more of you agree as touching anything, it'll be done for them. There's something about agreeing together in prayer. Epaphras, he says, he was wrestling in prayer for you. It, he made it sound, and he said that in verse 13, he says it's hard. He says he's working hard for you. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you, and not only you, but those in these two other cities, towns. And it's hard work. Prayer is hard work. He agonized over it. He got into it. He was, it was, he was serious about it, you know. Sometimes, and I've noticed this through the years, you know, it's, it's sometimes easier to give a Bible study than it is to have a prayer meeting. It's easier to, to look and study God's Word together, and that's good to do, right? We want to do that. Than it is to say, well, let's pray. Let's pray for the church. Let's pray for the world. Let's pray for our president. Let's pray for, for uh, so-and-so who's in a need. It, that's hard work. He's working hard for you, he said. Epaphras, very different from this guy Jesus Justice, right? But, but had a very radical, powerful ministry. Thirdly, how about verse 14? Our dear friend Luke, the doctor. Y'all have heard that name. The first two you probably didn't know. 
although we've mentioned Epaphras in the beginning of the study. But, but Luke, we all know because he's the writer of the Gospel of Luke. But Paul calls him a dear friend, a beloved friend, somebody that I trust and care for. Paul, on his second missionary journey, Luke, the doctor, had joined the team, so to speak, and traveled around with them. And, and as you read the book of Acts, which he also wrote the book of Acts, you see it's in, you know, we went and we did this. And, Paul, and Luke is writing that. Traveled with him now near the end of, now near the end of uh, Paul's life. When Paul knew he was about to be martyred, he says in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, only Luke is with me. He was the only one left at that particular point in time. His time is coming. Everybody else was out doing. Some were, were doing, out doing good things. Others, not so good. But this man, Luke, who was a doctor, one commentator says this, was he a doctor who gave up what might have been a lucrative career in order to tend Paul's thorn in the flesh and to preach Christ? We don't know. We don't know what his story was. We don't know, you know what he left, what he left behind, but we do know that, that he gave his life to serve Jesus Christ no matter what. Whether it was you know, in a doctor's office or in a, a community college of Rhode Island, we know that there's something about using your gifts and abilities to serve and to do what God wants you to do. One of the things that a doctor has to have is skills of observation. Right? They, they, they listen to you. Oh, they're supposed to. They usually do. They listen to you and you go in and you say, Doctor, this is what my problem is and I've been having this kind of thing. They don't just, you just come in and they, you, you're silent and they, and they just kind of guess. That's not how it works, right? You tell them what's going on. They, they, they have these skills of observation. Good doctors will, will listen carefully to what you say. And from that, come up with some kind of diagnosis and some kind of way to help you and to treat the symptoms and the, to help the problem. Luke had those skills. And you see, but he used those skills for you and for me. Some 2,000 years later, in, the, in Luke chapter 1, Luke writes these words. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to, me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. He, he, he had these skills of observation. He wrote down these things. He, he was very careful in what he did. And, and now you and I have the book of Luke. And we also have the book of Acts. He, he, he went on to say something very similar to that, that he, he wanted to put together very carefully. He was a dear friend, but God used him. You see, he had different skills. Different skills than Jesus' justice. Different skills than, what was the last guy's name? Epaphras. We're all different. You know, we get into trouble when we try to do what someone else is called to do. When I try to be like somebody else, I get in trouble. I look, you know, foolish. 
Well, I look foolish anyway, so that doesn't make any difference. But David trying to wear Saul's armor, what did he say? I can't do it. Doesn't fit me. Can't make it, I can't make this happen. And he went back to what he had. Is he had that slingshot, right? And he went and he, and he faced Goliath. Because he, he had to be who he was in God's sight, with God's gifts and God's talents. The fourth one, and I'm going to finish with this one, is, is found there in the second half of that verse. Verse 14, and it's not such a good picture, I'm afraid. He says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas, send greetings. Simply, and Demas. Now, Demas, we, we, there are only three times that he's mentioned, this guy Demas in Scripture. In Philemon, Paul writing, he says, Demas, he was included there as a fellow worker. Demas, the fellow worker. Here, which these letters were, this letter was written around the same time as Philemon, he is just says, and Demas. But about six years later, at the end of Paul's life, written the same time where Paul says, only Luke is with me. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says this about Demas. Actually, why don't you go ahead and turn there. I want you to see the words for yourself. Ahead, just a few chapters, a few books, I'm sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Let's start in verse 9. It says, Do your best to come to me quickly, talking about Timothy, talking to Timothy. He says, For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. He says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's the last we hear about this guy, Demas. That's the last we hear, that he loved the world and he left, he deserted. We did this study last week, right, about Mark. Mark, he quit, he, he gave up, he went back home, but then he's restored and we see that, you know, he's useful to me, Paul says in my ministry. But here, we don't know the end of the story for Demas. It says that he loved the world. It didn't say that about Mark. That's why I wonder, Mark, it was just he was very young and immature. But Demas, it says very clearly here, he loved this world and he deserted me and he left his post. He loved the world. He loved the things of the world, what the world had to offer. And he left and he went away. I think the question is, how are you and I going to finish we heard again from Barbara, you know, getting shaken. What kind of a foundation do we have? What kind of a finish are we going to have? How did it happen in this guy's life? We don't know. This is all we know from these few references. Maybe he just began to slowly drift, slowly drift away. Hebrews chapter 2 says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We've got to pay attention and be very careful that we don't drift away and find ourselves in love with the world. Maybe it was a slow compromise. You you know the example of the frog in the pot of water. You put him in cold water and he's happy as anything. You start to, you know, heat it up slowly, slowly. He starts to say, this feels kind of good too, but... 
eventually slowly brought to a boil and eventually it kills him. John the Apostle said these words, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Don't love the world, he says. Be very careful. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. So we have these four guys as I wrap this up. We have Jesus Justice, who just was a quiet example, just doing what God called him to do. We have Epaphras, who was a prayer warrior. He wrestled in prayer. We have Luke, who traveled with and supported Paul and then used his gifts and abilities to give us these writings, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And then we have Demas, who deserted for the love of the world. We're stopping there with a warning. We're left with a warning. The question I want to leave you with is, what about you and what about me? What kind of person am I? What kind of life do I have? What kind of uh, thing has God called me to do? And am I being faithful? And am I, am I using the gifts and the abilities that he's given me, that he's given you? Where do I fit in? Where do you fit in? Because the truth is that God's know, God knows my name. God knows your name as well. It's very personal, very real at the same time. We're a, we're a small group here, but you know what? We can have a powerful impact on this world. How? By, by just being what God's called us to be, by praying, by serving, by using those gifts and abilities, and by being careful of the world because it would like to suck us in. Let's pray together, shall we?